Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Gio. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, fuller introduction. Jay um of McKinsey and Company, who is VP and Associate Partner. Um, we are very excited to have MJ on the show because a lot of the trends that we picked up on from um, leaders in the space over the last half year have been that um, companies are more and more using agile methodologies, yeah. um, design techniques mm-hmm. uh, to increase creativity mm-hmm. and actually, in effect, um, increase the bottom line of revenues in their business. And um, Joe has a background um, traditionally from the arts, a creative background, and now of course is in um, probably the most notorious strategic consulting business on the planet. So we will do a bio where we understand the serendipity Mm -hmm. of your journey. Uh, We will cover um, the difference, the nuances between digital, design uh, and we will also um, get your extreme vantage point on the trends, yeah. the macro trends that you've seen happening over the last few months yeah. um, of COVID. We're in uh, July yeah. 2020. So of course, uh, we're going to have to discuss some of that stuff. So Absolutely. I just wanted to also acknowledge that we have Mimi Nguyen, uh of Mana Labs on the, on the show also. So uh, Jo and Mimi know each other uh, and um, have uh, fascinating conversations on yeah. design and all of these type of things. So there will be parts of the show that will be um, better if you two uh, have that discussion. So just to finish the introduction, I just wanted to give some context. Uh, McKinsey and Company were founded um, 94 years ago. Uh, They have offices in 127 countries. They have 27,000 employees and their revenues as of 2018 were 10 billion plus. Um, So great work. All going very well. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just one one of the cog in the wheel. (laughs) But crucial one and ever more crucial. Um, So super excited to have you on the the show. could you give us an understanding of what you're doing at the moment in McKinsey, please? So right now, um, I'm officially the associate partner um, where uh, I work with a number of designers within the studio. So when I say studio, um, the studio has um, service designers, um, graphic designers, communication designers, storytellers, and then data analytics, and then uh, at the extended studio, which is outside of our London office, we have studios plotted in um, Stockholm, in Berlin, 
in few hubs across the Europe, right? So there are some industrial designers, product designers, um, and, and a combination of basically interdisciplinary designers. So I've worked with them. So that's primary piece. And then the secondary piece is I've worked with business leaders within the firm, i.e. when I say business leaders, um, partners and senior partners who are responsible for client impact and work with clients in understanding what the problems are and how do we um, take some of clients' problems and how can we start to kind of look at it more rigorously from both uh, qualitatively and quantitatively. So one of the things that's that's really important for us to look at both from both angles and then develop um, yeah, user-centered strategies. That's what I do. So you very much have um, many facets of the business, but from what I'm appreciating here, almost um, you know a hunter and gatherer in nature, where there's partners and senior individuals with their network who are perhaps industry specialists and their understanding which companies need uh, solutions. And then you have um, internally all the different type of skills that you just listed that yeah. you're working across, where in essence you're coming up with the solution. And of course, there will be cross-pollination internally. Um, if we could understand, um, and I know McKinsey are deadly serious about their responsibility to be discreet with who they're working with, um, but if you can paint the picture of perhaps something you're doing right now. Yeah. So what we, uh, we do is it's, um, we work with clients hand in hand in understanding um, some of the problems that they have. When we say problems, for example, in, in today's world, if you're looking at um, right now, COVID has struck um, and how do we get back to business? How do we help uh, some of our clients to you know, think through that problem. Yeah. So tangibly, if you think about it, um, what does that mean uh, from a safe uh, reopening? How, what are the steps that you need to put in place? So we help them do those, achieve those, um, you know, from a short-term point of view. How can we get you up and running on a, from a safety point of view? And then we help them think about, okay, now that's part, just part of one part. Now, second part would be how do you, now, there's an opportunity to actually reset and transform and think about your business from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah, so we you should, you should do this for the government right now. <laughs> See, we would probably help if, yeah. if they come and knock it as a door. <laughs> um, but then primarily what we do is we use design as a methodology, at least where I sit. Um, how can we use design as a way to think through this problem? What, what it means is how do we... How do we think about people, put people at the middle of any sort of problem solving, understand what the needs of the people are. So when we work with clients, we actually try to understand what their end users or customers are going through and unlocking that and understanding their unmet needs is, is crucial to any sort of you know, near-term safe uh, sort of an opening or long-term reset uh, reimagination of their uh, business. So it's important to think through from a design angle, what, what is that design angle? What does it really entail and so on and so forth. Um, so for me, it sounds a bit like you're implementing design thinking mm -hmm. into solving uh, wicked problems, issues of your clients, which actually sounds a bit like 
traditional consulting, but they never used design thinking before. So yeah. uh, when I was in Accenture, we would say, okay, we're trying to help clients with the issues and we're yeah. coming to solve their problems yeah. or to find um, the purpose of the next transformation yeah. and, and things. Yeah. But then, so when I was actually, uh, for example, in, in Accenture, I was at the same time studying at the University of yeah. Arts uh, in Warsaw. And it would never come to my mind mm -hmm. that I could uh, continue this art adventure and staying in consulting yeah. so um, my background was before in a, in the economic school and everyone was dreaming about going to McKinsey right. like every student and uh, you really wanted to be a consultant but back then I don't know 2012 you, you wouldn't apply to McKinsey with an arts yeah. certificate with the arts bachelor yeah. um, so so can you give us like how did you yeah. get from also an art degree, yeah. but now you're an uh, associate partner in McKinsey. Yeah. Look, these are all my personal views here, okay? So I just want to uh, upfront and let you know that. So from my personal journey, if you ask, um, art, is, uh, art is an integral part of design, if you think about it, because it involves aesthetics, it involves um, a kinesthetics aspect of anything to do with design. But my personal journey, if you, if you will, Let's see, um, back in the 90s, um, I, I studied art um, in India and um, mainly it was sculpture, painting, um, printmaking a little bit and uh, occasionally some art history programs and that's about it. But then at that time there was this, uh, this view that how, how can our artists be doing anything to do with commercial? Forget, forget about it. There's no space for it. So through through throughout that process, what um, I, I encountered something called advertising at that time, right? So started working in small advertising agencies. Came across um, how to make uh, you know artistic sort of you know um, work for publication and communication purposes. Over time, I um, I did that, but I didn't. It didn't interest me. Advertising really, absolutely. Uh, bored me to a point where I felt like it's not truthful. You know, you you you're forced to um, sell something that's not true, and I I couldn't stick to it. So I left advertising and I moved into design. I was fortunate to have met at that time um, a lady called Sujata Keshwan. She ran a very successful design studio in India, and then uh, it was sold to Brand Union at later stage. So I was one of the earliest designers. I worked uh, with Sujata. She basically became my uh, mentor. And she was Paul Rand, so Paul, Paul Rand's uh, disciple. So I was like fortunate to learn what she learned from Paul Rand, for example. So that's where, that's how my design career actually started from an art to getting into design. And then structurally, ever since then, over the last 20 years, I've I've constantly focused on design, but then design has moved on from just being a normal design to something more commercial. How do you make uh, how do you make design relevant to uh, you know uh, businesses in a commercial context? That's how it's it's turned. So that's basically, in some sense, that's my journey really um, into in, in today's context. But then, how did you end up in Barclays? Wow! From being a designer. Yes. Um, that's so. Um, 
I was working for uh, one of the uh, most successful, you know, still an independent design studio called Native, um, which is around the corner from here near Shoreditch. Um, I was working there as a global creative director and um, helping shape some of the um, physical and digital experiences. And then after two years of my work there, almost two years, I decided to try something out new. And then during that time, financial industries were just going, trying to look into a slightly different direction. It's not just an analytical direction. It was going into a direction where how can design start to play a role? Because there were various financial products, but then it wasn't greatly designed, if you, if you will. So you didn't have monsters of the world. You didn't have revolutions of the world at that time. So um, I looked at it and I'm like, well, there is an opportunity to design something new. So um, a friend of mine got me into Barclays and uh, I was fortunate to have worked with some absolutely amazing minds. Uh, people like Rob Brown, Derek White, who went on from there to uh, head up head BBVA. In fact, Rob is now the CMO of BBVA. With, um, so I worked with Rob in establishing uh, what it is to look and innovate within the financial industry and particularly inside inside out rather than outside in. So we came in, we started to innovate, um, start to work with different types of products. And um, so I was involved in, um, in um, what it is called first FinTech Accelerator in Europe. So I was involved right from start. Um, so right now it's called Rice Platform within Barclays. So I was piloting right from the stages of piloting, I was involved, um, you know, getting that out and projects like um, Ping It back then, um, it, was, it was at the start of uh, the new products. Um, if you think about Ping It, so for example, it's like taking a design thinking approach and you think, okay, what is the thing that the user really needs? So, for example, when I was sitting there, I was like, I really want to send my, my friends money, yeah. but I don't want to ask for a bank account. Mm -hmm. And it uh, looks like, okay, if you have take a design approach, you think about this issue and then, okay, let's do ping it. Yeah. So you can just ping your friend using a phone number. But this hasn't been adopted as well as Monzo. So yeah. I think four years later, the whole country started to ping each other, Monzo each other money yeah. using phone numbers. But the solution existed before because I remember there was yeah. ping it before. Yeah. It was just not as well adopted so how you would now in yeah. reflection uh comment like why the ping it didn't happen yeah. as big why did it didn't yeah. grow as big as monzo for example yeah maybe it's important to recognize that um we're talking 10 years ago some of these banks big banks um big brands uh were going through a huge flux um and then when I say huge flux, um, end users, end consumers, i.e. retail banking consumers, always were on the fence about these big banks. So any products that were designed and released by these big banks, there's, there was this little bit of healthy skepticism existing, or existed, or still exists if you think about it, as opposed to if you think about six years ago, there was this thing called challenger banks and, and, and they came along and they, they challenged the status quo of these big banks. 
What it means is big banks did work, but then people didn't favor them. And if you think about it, all the just just think about a mortgage. If you wanted to do a mortgage at that time, it would take you six to eight weeks to get a mortgage application in place. How are you going to even win customers or win people's hearts? It's impossible. And when when in this time of when 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 I'm painting you that time and that that era, it's not far away. It's just like you know eight to ten years ago. It's it's such it's changed at such drastic speed when challenger banks came because at the core you were looking at how do I take some of these micro uh, services and then speed that up for for users that was the key right and then convenience so hitting on that convenience aspect really shot up as opposed to big banks they couldn't do it at that time although some great ideas were on the table great innovations happened. But it never saw the forefront because at, at the ground level, um, technology implications were a lot higher. Is it also because, um, and this goes back to perhaps strategic consultancies and McKinsey's success, that um, a small, um, well-synced creative team um, can challenge better than a large organization. So. Your options become, uh, you know, set up, get a load of money so that you can push it out, push it out, innovate, um, and then there's just one proposition. So it's like, okay, well, if I really appreciate great design, and I would like somebody working on making my banking experience uh, quicker and better, then I'll gravitate over here. So we've got the early adopters, and then if you've got in this instance Barclays, they're they're abreast of the innovation that their customers would yeah. like, but they have to quibble over the bottom line. The bottom line is very good, actually. So it's like, well, for this thing that would compete with the challenges that are going to take seven years to get there, and then bureaucracy slows it down, right? So then to consulting view, is that where the approach works, where McKinsey would, for instance, uh, be consulted with, and then what I'd like to understand is, do they keep that project stealth away from the core business? Yeah. Are they trying to replicate what a startup is doing? Yeah. It depends, right? <clears throat> um, if, if you think about it, there are ways you could possibly, we, we have something called Leap, right? At, at, uh, at the firm, I mean, it's, it's there in public domain. Leap is where we, we help Companies look at some of those type of things. Um, if 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 a big corporation comes and they want to do a new product or a new service, um, we we kind of help find a way to help them take it as a separate piece of business and then help them really accelerate. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the advice typically is take it as a separate piece of business. Um, it's we don't advise that, right? So um, I, I would suggest offer it up as an option. Possibly, if it makes sense, yeah. right? If it makes sense. Um, Specifically, so my question is quite narrow. If you're trying to disrupt and be on the cutting edge of a user experience, then we're trying to understand a small team's better. Mm. So traditionally from large teams, um, you know, the, 
the, the, the way we are thinking about it, at least the way uh, we're structuring the teams out of that. Um, looking at um, how can teams have blended skills or team members have blended skills. So for example, if you look at a service designer with a spike uh, around UX, UI, which is quite rare, and then sometimes you get a service designer um, or your UX UI designer with a spike in coding as well, which you would have never expected someone to have 15 years ago. 15 years ago, you would have a traditional information architect, you would have a content designer, you would have a graphic designer, you would have an art director, four different skills in a team on top of your leadership. Here, right now, what we are saying is the world has changed so much. In, in today's context, you don't need those four different individual skill sets because you get those blended in, in, in people. Um, Why so do you think that's happened? It's, re it's really around um, two things, right? One is over, over the years, um, the application of design and digital has really accelerated. So over the years, um, uh, how do we how do we understand um, from a traditional system to getting you know spiking your skills up so that you can start to blend um, into uh, into into one designer with two skills? That's one one side of the angle, right? From a practitioner standpoint, how do you bolster yourself with two or three skills to get uh, to get ahead? So from a design point of view, now. If you look at business angle point of view, yeah. 15 years ago, staffing four people to do a website uh, would have costed you about um, you know a million pounds or dollars generally. You know, and over the years, it's completely changed. The reason it's one is tech, tech technology driven um, because you have faster editing tools. You don't need to traditionally structure it in a way where um, you know financially it's not viable. But in today's world, um, you cannot technically structure it because it costs you two, twice or you know, three times more than what you would ever budget for from, from individually if you look at those. So having people with blended skills uh, are a lot better both from uh, getting the work done at the same time uh, from, from, uh, from a financial viability of a project. Joe, sure. let's say that we took money out of the equation here yeah. um, with a blank yeah. checkbook yeah. and we just want to produce um, the best website in the next few months yeah would you choose the four best individual skills yeah. sets coming together for that project or would you choose one individual who has that blend of all the skill sets good question um I wouldn't, it's not quite black and white of, 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 that, of that nature, right? So it's not like four different skill set and then forced into one. It's, it's definitely, I would support interdisciplinary kind of an approach, but then looking at what the problem we are trying to solve, if it is just a website, um, you know, it depends on what is the website about. It's about, if it's a newspaper type of a website, then you will need a skill set slightly different from um, you building a automobile, you know, uh, e-commerce website. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it's just following on from your uh, example, 
which is really clear that you know many years ago um, the technology was so slow that a practitioner had to stay in their one discipline and so you'd have to bring the different disciplines together so it made me think well actually yes technology is speeding up but also the real innovation here is that the cost has gone down um, but actually if we still think today there's progress to be made if something's incredibly complex then we need more people in the team to complete the jigsaw puzzle whereas if it's quite simple the benefit of technology and individuals now being skilled across various um, various skills uh, is that actually somebody can do a lot more so if we were to make predictions moving forward um, and I would just like pose the, the thought but you, you of course go into as much detail as you want will that keep happening will it get to a point where one individual can keep on not only doing what today would take for 10 people but also then broadening out to something that's much more of a complex product as well i think i think it's important for us to recognize that um, how skills are changing and transforming you know it's important to recognize that that from a pattern point of view if you look at it 15 years ago designers were not asked for coding skills simple as that and today if you um, if, if if i were to hire someone today as context i would think about it's a plus point if you say to me that you have prototyping skills i would be like okay what kind of prototyping skills do you have do you have a prototyping skills to use in vision there's this kind of app or do you have prototyping skills of uh, of a bit of a html and and Python and a bit of JavaScript. And the latter being preferred. Latter being preferred, I would suggest, in some sense. But then I would also suggest it doesn't mean that you don't have the skills of just normal prototyping, that is quick iteration. Because if you think about it, HTML, JavaScript, all those can complicate your prototyping in a way where it can take time. So if you are thinking about quick iterative way of learning from users, creating a product or a service, putting it in front of people and, and getting responses from them is, is, is crucial, right, if, in, in the process of design. Now, it's, it's a break, it's how do you break, break the balance? So, so from a skill set point of view, for me, it's a, it's a positive asset if you have coding skills. Now, it doesn't negate the factor that you have to quickly iterate and test and iterate and test. So it's all, almost like a mindset, right? You can put your coding skills in one side, but you, you also have to think about it. What is appropriate? If I have to test, literally, I'm, I'm creating a design solution now, and then tomorrow I need to test. I don't have time to do HTML prototypes. I'm sorry, yeah. we, don't, we don't have. So how do we do that without that? So it's, it's a balance between both. But to, to your point, uh, from a skill set standpoint, I would always go lean towards the latter. Yeah, so this is something that Mimi um, studies yeah. and researches. Um, so certainly some of the trends that um, we're coming across suggest what I was trying to kind of tee up there, which is whether it's consultancy going into a large firm 
whether it's a large firm getting a product right, whether it's a challenger, time and time again, it seems to come back to when the individual, um, what I call inner scorecard connects with what the opportunity is. Yeah. And so in that instance, if somebody's able to, okay, I need to visualize it, I very need to quickly just prototype this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to share it with my team, we're going to quickly then go on to the next iteration. These things start to make sense why it works also then in a smaller team. So they're the two trends that we're really picking up on. Yeah, so for me, when mm -hmm. you mentioned the mind mindset or having this coding skills, it goes back to my, my research now when I'm seeing that the issue in the interdisciplinary teams, it's the communication issue. Mm -hmm. So when you have a software engineer that is clearly just a software engineer and designer that is very, very apt, mm -hmm. they just cannot communicate. Yes. But the same with the business side, when I mean, going back to Accenture, I had issues when people were for thinking that I'm crazy in Accenture when I was showing them artsy things. I'm like, I don't get it. Yeah. But I think when you have blended skills, it helps. Even if you're a designer, you know coding. You don't have to code, but you understand the coder that you work with. Yeah. So you know what's feasible, what is not feasible. So I don't have high expectation. And I show him a, mm -hmm. uh, a visual and I say, you have to code it like yeah. this. And he, he would say it's impossible. But if you don't have blended skill, you would, would not trust him, you would not believe him. But by having blended skills, so you, you know a bit of coding, you understand his mindset, his language, it's easier to communicate and, and build something together. That's kind of... Both, yeah. you, both of you guys um, are this example of having um, a creative and artistic background, but also an economic business which seems like is fortuitous yeah. uh, and obviously, you know, choreographed um, for, for your own success. But let's just take that out, out of um, the frame, think about recommending to the audience how you could get this learning. Yeah. Because it seems to me like, right, now we're moving forward with fantastic ones like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Look, design... Um, if you think about it traditionally, uh, design cannot exist in isolation. Let's put it this way. If you look around anywhere, whether it's a brick and mortar space or digital or um, any sort of experiences, it involves design and it involves uh, a certain rigorous way of looking at users' problems and then redesigning and reframing the whole you know, experience. Now, at the end of the day, the, diff the difference between art or artisticness is that art could be more um, a way to self-reflect and it doesn't have any repercussions. It might have repercussions, don't quote me on that, but it's, uh, it's more of a self-reflection in that sense that you know, um, I could produce a piece of art and get away by saying it's my piece of art and whether you like it or not, uh, you don't have to consume my art. It's fine, you know. As opposed to when you're thinking about design, you're doing it. You're doing a service to someone else, and someone else is going to use your product or service, which is where the business angle comes in. Absolutely, so Jared. That's yeah. like um, you know, album one of an indie band can be incredibly good to a niche audience. Mm -hmm. And then as they get more successful and end up in some type of stadium rock where it's just like one extended chord, it has broader popular appeal, but it's rubbish. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm picking it through. So again, back to my point, the, all of these findings make me think that the trends are much like with data science. People didn't know what a data scientist was 10 years ago. Yeah. And then this became the rock star role, right? And then right now, everybody's talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, which in essence is very much data cleansing and using data science, right? This was theorized 50 years ago. Yeah. Of course, the technology is catching up. Yeah. Lots of interesting conversations around automation. Feels to me like, I'm not saying art for one's purpose, yeah. but the consideration of a product and then thinking from a design engineering perspective, what does the customer, as Jeff Bezos would say, want is everything in a digital future, which I think we all agree on. How can you go about making sure that you're fit for purpose in the business world to strike that balance? I think it's it's important. Um, there are not many designers right now who actually spend that time are, are thinking through how it impacts from a business standpoint. So if you if you think about traditionally in the art colleges and design schools in UK, certainly I don't know about uh, US, but in UK, uh, there's this absolute search for creativity and, and, and students are coming out very talented, very super individuals, right? Very good designers. Now, what happen, often happens is they are not trained to think about the repercussion of any design at a scale, you know? So, so as a designer, it's our responsibility now to think about, okay, if we put something in people's hand, it's not just about, because people desire it, I am going to give you that. It's, it's no more that. You need to think beyond that. So what, is, what does that mean? It means is how easy it is to manufacture. Now, in a physical product design, you will think about colors, materials, finish, scale, you know, manufacturing processes, etc., etc. In the digital world, you're going to think about um, who are, how many people are the users, you know, what is the scale of the usage, and what's the context of usage, and so on and so forth. So you have to blend, you have to, as a designer, you have to work your skill around who are your target audience and you know, particular target audience, niche audience, yeah. and how many are there, and what is important for them, and how do we quickly test and learn some of your design solutions, yeah. and then actually frame it back to the business and technology owners, for example, saying, hey, listen, you know, there are five things users want, but then two of them are critical. Without those two, your business cannot stand. And, and that, that kind of mindset, usually designers are not encouraged or taught in schools at the moment. So we, we really have to focus on, from a design point of view, how do you help designers think through business and how do you frame them in, in the context of, I'm not talking about profit here, I'm talking about adoption. Yeah. And adoption equals something else, it's, which is obvious. And so how do we get people to adopt a solution is very, very much designer's responsibility rather than anyone else or, or along with everyone else. Um, and my question is now, 
about the other side when you said like you know these uh, students are coming out from art schools and they're not really having this business mindset uh, trying to think about production mm -hmm. and, and scalability what about the business world so McKinsey had this report with McKinsey Design Index that is yeah. uh, showing yeah. uh, that implementing design methodologies approaches uh, will increase uh, revenues for businesses and and shares um, yeah. value for the stakeholders how do you see is the is the sector so are other businesses um, as you say telecoms pharma um, finance are they ready to welcome this 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 design approaches and mm. you know the the report is kind of calling out on that mm. so do you see a changing trend do you see now businesses are more open minded for implementing mm. design methodologies and and how is it about um, about kind of the skills that in the company itself yeah. like are people hiring designers now more and mm. what is the trend um, it's a great question so I think I think it's um, it's it's going to take time right now if you almost look at fortune 500 or even thousand companies if you look at them uh, how many of them have uh, you know, chief design officers, so to speak, at a C-suite level. You have CMOs for pretty much all of the firms. You have uh, CIOs and probably the firms who are more tech-enabled and technology-focused, uh, even, you know, non-technology-focused have CTOs. Chief digital officers, uh, this, is this new thing that's, that's kind of, you know, people are there, but then CDOs, chief design officers or CEO, Chief experience officers, how many are there? Barely a few, you know, you get a handful of them. It's so it's quite slow right now. If you think about it, it's part of our our collective as as designers, for us it, and design thinkers and design and business sort of you know catalysts, we need to think through how can we help companies understand the value of it. Right. So when I say value of design, so the way I see the value of design is, um, is, is is broken in four pieces, right? One would be analytical leadership and one would be cross-functional teams. And then one, this, this notion of continuous iteration, you need to iterate constantly your products or service. And then the fourth one would be uh, build world-class user experience, which, which um, those are the four critical things that um, that companies needs to think about. So whether it's um, whether it's a Fortune 500 or even a smaller uh, mid-sized company, they need to focus on how can we use these four uh, facets and then really think through um, what, what what would that mean to the bottom line of the business. And uh, it's it in some sense it's like how do we help adoption? How do we help users adopt products and services that these companies are focusing on? So I wouldn't lose the plot of those four facets. And so what my, re my recommendation would be to for companies to think through, through these angles and then quite seriously think about it and reflect and then put, put frameworks together in terms of how do we quant quantitatively and qualitatively analyze the, the return on investments. So let's make design speak for itself. Let's put designers in the positions and responsible positions where they actually can reply saying it, you know, 
if there are KPIs attached to the design process and what are the KPIs, rigorously get them to become responsible for that and get them to deliver to that. Now, which is not happening in the traditional firms. It's happening at COO levels. It's happening at CDO levels, chief digital officer levels, but not at a design because it's so hard to quantify. You know, it's how do you how do you quantify someone emotionally? You you know feels like doing you know I feel like swiping left and right and so on and so forth. How do you quantify these these kind of interactions? You know, from a design point of view, because that's how we are measured. But then what I'm saying is we need to be uh, systematic about it. We need to put processes in place where uh, design becomes, uh, uh, you know, equal voice on the table to deliver KPIs, I would say. Yeah. So if we think about the companies who are structurally set up like that, um, then they would have been primed to take the opportunity over the last few months in the um, COVID environment. Um, we wanted to ask you about some of the macro trends you're seeing and on top of them, in fact, even working uh, on them. Yeah. <clears throat> I think from a macro trend, it's nothing new, right? You, um, everyone are uh, experiencing this, 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 um, this problem around how do we get, get on and how do we start reopening our businesses? So, so from a trends standpoint, we, we see that generally people are getting comfortable with, with the way we are operating right now. So it's quite a, whether one likes to believe it or not, nobody would have thought um, that six months ago, if you said, um, you know, you need to come and develop the solution. And especially as a designer, doing ethnography is key to our process. So, you know, going into people's homes or natural environments to observe, talk to them, understand their needs, passively observe what they're doing, and then glean onto some insights is absolutely critical for any kind of a designer, right? Why is that? What do you, what do you um, extract from that personal um, experience? So the way it works is, for example, if, um, if, if you just interview someone saying, let's, let's, I'm, I'm just going to give an example, right? Let's, uh, let's, if you're a diabetic patient, a chronic diabetic patient, for example, I'm going to ask you, what are your, you know, what's, what's, what's your life look like? You're going to talk to me about, oh, I wake up in the morning, I do this, you know, I go for my walk and I come back, I eat a meal and then I go for another exercise. And if, if you're talking to someone who's in their 60s particularly, they would give you a, a, what their day looks like. They would talk to you about it. Now, on the hindsight, you visit them in their natural environment. Um, you get to see um, <laughs> their refrigerators <laughs> and uh, you would get to see their medicine, medical, medi medicine boxes. You would get to see things that are important for them, but actually they don't actually think about it. For example, you know, Chronic patients at 60, uh, if you're 60 plus, you are more likely to have 20 to 30 medications. Now, it's important for you to think about, if you look at most of people, how they maintain medications, it's not organized in, in, in an appropriate way, where at each point in time, from morning, they might have like six to 10 
afternoon they but it's not even organized it's all over it's all put in one bag most of the time if you observe those little glances and gleams you will never get by doing let me zoom you and talk to you about it you know you, you would never get that it, it it always comes down to devil is in the detail when it comes to design a successful design people or people who can extract these serendipities these kind of moments into insights and that's when you produce products great products and services that people would have never even thought that they needed it's like if you hadn't come here today then you might have thought that we're quite slick <laughs> in our production whereas by having come here you've realized that's absolutely not the case and uh, our batteries ran out several times on the camera and um, it's uh, it's a real mess but um, you know there we are so no that that makes a lot of lot of sense and I suppose you know that's why data is key it doesn't just have to be you know data in a data model a data set that you're taking insights from it's the actual reality because somebody's story can be rose tinted it can negate facts um, it can be in their own map of what's happening yeah. what you're saying by actually observing watching listening then this is where the surprise is yeah. Yeah, that's qualitatively, right? So that's, again, I was uh, earlier talking to you about qualitative and quantitative, right? So if you think about, you take these lean on qualitative uh, analysis and insights, and then you put it in, put them into a machine of quant quantitative in terms of large data sets, and then start testing in, 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 in scale. And then that's when you get those results. Anyway, I'm digressing by, by saying that, but what I'm saying is coming back to the macro trend. So so people, this is one of the trends that's yeah. going on. Another trend that... So sorry, uh, from that, is the point, other than how you observe, which can be really useful to understand, is that are you looking at trying to help them organize the structure of how they take medication, for instance? Yeah, in, in, for example, in this case, if you think about it now, um, uh, a few years ago, there was uh, a particular product, um, no, it was a service, which Amazon, um, I can't quite remember what um, what uh, what that service was, but it, effectively Amazon actually purchased them um, last two or three years ago. Um, yes, I know I remember. It's called PillPack. So PillPack was a service that came out of this sort of observation, right? So the way it, it the service not it works, it talks to your. Um, um, it, it, the service actually connects to your GP or your specialist doctors, and it um, it it also leads to what your problems are from a medical records point of view, and then they package your monthly medication and sent off. And you get that home sitting on your sofa. You get that it's all pre-packed. Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, lunch, dinner, blah blah blah. It's all pre-packed. And all you do, do is you take that, you tear up, and you pop. So I'm going to be really controversial here um, as somebody who um, obviously has a lot of interest in bigging up the benefit of fintech, which there's numerous applications that do that. But I feel like sometimes fintech sells itself on speed a little bit too much because you give the example of applying for a mortgage taking eight weeks 
Okay, that's too long, but quite frankly, right, let's have a little bit of patience. This is a house I'm purchasing. Perhaps I can spend two weeks in my application process. It doesn't need to be one minute. Whereas when we talk about medication, when we talk about health, that this is imperative, that this is 100% efficient, that it is incredibly speedy. And that also, if somebody might not have the capabilities of thinking everything through themselves, then that is done for them. So, you know, let's, let's, um, let's kind of embrace the work that's happening in this space right now, which is crucial. And, um, you know, I'd be keen to understand some of the other stuff you're seeing as well. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so in terms of trends, we are talking about trends, right? So that, so that's one, one of the trends that I wanted to focus on. And the second trend um, that I'm seeing, or we, or what, what I would suggest is how, how can we help? Um, people are fearful now at the moment. So when I say fearful, people are actually fearful even to step into a hospital environment, let alone anything. So that is a huge trend. So um, why there's fear? We, it's sort of you know, obvious in some people's heads, but some people are wondering, why should we be fearful? You know, we have to walk into a hospital, we shouldn't be fearful. Uh, in fact, that's a safe place, right? Um, but what we are gleaning is that, that hospitals are a place actually where people are often getting infected. Um, and then so, so the trend is that people want to avoid going to hospitals, which, is, which leads up to a trend that is six months ago, when you were talking about telemedicine, people would be like, particularly in the industry experts or businesses or even you know, doctors. And they would be like, no, there's no use, there's no need for telemedicine. For example, if you look at markets like Germany, uh, adopt, adoption of telemedicine a year ago was very low, right? Now, if you think about it, in the last four weeks, adoption of telemedicine has gone up by 40%. And that's a huge trend. Yeah. And it's a, it's a positive trend, for example, you know, in, in a way where how can we you know, things, how can we cut down on waiting time? You know, you don't have to go in the hospitals and wait forever. And now that's, that's a huge trend which is actually, uh, you know, becoming a bigger, uh, you know, future way of doing it. So, Jay, thanks. I know you can't go into too much detail, of course. Um, it's part of the mystique of companies like McKinsey and Martin Search. We have to, you know, have some discretion. Um, just stepping up and outside and changing gears. Um, they're a fascinating individual. What's some of the stuff that you're doing outside of work and you, you, you managing to um, keep sane outside of um, business? You've obviously just taken this really um, prominent role in a busy business at a busy time. Um, what's going on? Outside of work? <laughs> um, outside of work, I, um, I spend a lot of time with my uh, wife and uh, my two-year-old son. Uh, he's just about to touch two years next month. Um, so I'm really happy that I'm able to get that time uh, with them. Um, usually I travel a lot and uh, there's a positive change that's happened. It's terrible to say that, but for, for me personally, there's a positive change that I'm able to spend more time at home now, um, which is quite nice. Um, outside of... Um, my busy business life, I um, I tend to draw a lot, 
some actually right now I'm working on a graphic novel um, around how do how do you um, how do you uh, how do you make Bible more accessible in a graphic sense? So a bit, it's a project that it's a personal project that I started doing about eight years ago, and I'm quite disciplined. I at least try and get one sort of a, a one narrative illustrated in 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 a month. Um, so now I'm probably I'm confidently say I'm closing towards end of all book of Genesis. So the idea is to bring that into a book and potentially if there are investors for an animation movie, I would I would love to get that. And yeah. it's a specific unique style that I'm developing. And Genesis is it's as as you know, it's quite a large book if you are familiar with it. <clears throat> I'm about 75% there. So my idea is by 2021, um, if I could get the book out. Um, that, that's that's something that I do that's outside of my uh, my work. That's that's why we ask the question because it never stops surprising me how people who are so successful in busy jobs manage to be doing other incredible stuff. Is there anything that you've got that's um, that's shorter um, where the audience, if they're interested, can visit and see your style and get them ready for the uh, for the, the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a there is a uh, there's a blog. Uh, called projectbasel.com. Yeah. Um, around that, there's a blog there. You can you can search um, Jyotishnaya Project Basel. Um, the project it's called Project Basel. B e z a l e l Project Basel. So you can search and you will see um, you know live version of what I'm doing. Um, and then yeah, right. and, and reach out to me if you have any questions around that. I'll do that, and we'll put that link in the show notes. Um, yeah, Genesis is my favorite actually part of the Bible. There's uh, we can think about the, the story about seven skinny cows and seven fat cows. So yeah. we'll get over the crisis hopefully soon. Um, and and that's a good thing that it comes back. So yeah. it will be a good thing. But um, going back to the COVID, I just wanted to ask about the future as yeah. well. So the seven fat cows now. Uh, how do you see the future of actually consulting? Because you said that you used to travel a lot, and mm-hmm. I did see. Um, a good thing in consultants being on site because mm-hmm. that's how you do at least like when you said ethnographical research when you yeah. observe the um, the users yeah. so also the consultant when they go into the client they observe how the clients are working and that's how they can actually help better yeah. so big free even big four plus Accenture everyone is working on site yeah. and hence they're charging so much money mm-hmm. and they're so actually good so how do you see now McKinsey? Are you guys going to fly that much? And how do you think it would affect your performance by just working from home? Definitely, I would I would talk about myself right now, right? In the last four months, um, we have managed to do the same impactful work staying at home. And when I say home, remote working. Um, so to your point, ethnography can be done remotely as long as you you pre-prepare some of the questions up front, and then you also get consent from people, the relevant consent that you need to get. Um, for example, earlier we talked about the medication, notion of medication and all of that and refrigerator. You can't just barge into someone's life and say, show me your refrigerator, but upfront you kind of work with, with, uh, with research agencies who give you uh, the candidates whom you want to go uh, speak and meet and, and, and kind of uh, glean for insights. You get in, you know, relevant consents upfront. And then while you're on, on the Zoom, you actually 
make sure your Zoom materials and tools are absolutely in place so that the other person who's talking to you also has good internet connection. Good, uh, you know, uh, if it's not underground where, um, you know, suddenly the person is talking to you, but then they, by the time they walk into the kitchen to show you a refrigerator, the whole, you know, uh, the, the internet fades off. It, making sure those basic things are in place. And then we are still doing it and we are quite successful in it. And so, so from a future work standpoint, well, my view is there will always be a healthy balance now moving forward. It may not probably be always just go physically be in, in that location. And, uh, and that's my suspicion. And clearly we have, we, we have kind of you know, proven the point that, you know, we can all still deliver, not just us, right? Across the world, if you look at all types of jobs, but maybe to your own self, to your own, you know, the way you operate, the whole operating model has changed in the last four, four months. So I do suspect and I do feel like, you know, we can still deliver the same impactful work remotely. And where it is absolutely crucial, we may have to, based on the government guidelines and so on and so forth, we may have to, you know, take it by by uh, one step at a time and, and look, look at those and then plan, I guess. Gio, um, this has been a really great showcase as we expected it would be. Um, I think quite counter to a profile that you'd expect from McKinsey if you just think of the reputation. This is what we wanted to show, this is what the whole um, podcast is about. Um, you know, for somebody to be doing such creative work at a business like McKinsey, where, you know, economics and art are fusing is just fantastic to see. Yeah. I mean, clearly full of passion, got loads of mana. Um, I'm sure you're going to be incredibly successful moving forward and we'll keep an eye on you. But um, from, um, from, certainly from my perspective, I'd just like to say thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you, um, Mimi. Thank you for inviting. And uh, I'm looking forward to taking this relationship on further and uh, meeting you guys more often.